When you go into the kitchen and you decide you are going to cook a packet of instant ramen noodles, are you a synthetic chemist? Uh, most would probably argue no, but you do have to do a number of chemical reactions in order to get that from package form all the way into edible form by the means of heating water, which is a physical reaction, infusing water into dried noodles, mixing in a packet of flavorings, and bringing it to the temperature that you want to eat it. So it's actually really a series of chemical reactions. So does that make you a synthetic chemist? Maybe not so much, but it definitely makes you a chemist of some degree. But where do we cross the line between chemist, synthetic chemist, cook, and, well, I guess chef for that matter? It's a good thing that we are going to talk to a synthetic chemist today, so maybe we could get a little bit of clarity on this issue. My name is Louis Colorotolo, and I'm a graduate student at the University of Guelph trying my best to cook up a PhD, and when I'm not cooking ramen for myself at 3am in the morning because I have no control over my time and self-schedule, I like to talk to other graduate students about what they're doing and why anyone should really care what graduate students are doing. So today we're going to talk with Mark Lennon, who is an actual synthetic chemist. And instead of boring us, I educating us with things about benzene rings, he's going to talk about that divide between what is chemistry versus synthetic chemistry and why anyone should ever really even care about it. But then again, if you were really into benzene rings, he will mention a benzene ring at least once, so I guess this episode is for everyone. So believe it or not, synthetic chemistry is uh, incredibly important. But also something that's equally important is realizing that we're graduate students and we don't know absolutely everything, which is why you're listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Mark. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. I want to uh, first start off by saying that this is a, a wonderful international collaboration that we're doing today. Uh, <laughs> for the most part, I talk to Americans and Canadians, but you are coming from a very far away part of the world right now where are you right now i'm i'm in quarantine in zurich switzerland yeah yeah i'm i'm in quarantine in canada so look at that we have something that really binds us together just an itty bitty global pandemic <laughs> indeed all right so uh mark could you give us your educational history like kind of run us through where you've been and what you're doing now yeah sure so um so i was born in in northern ireland um which explains the the accent born in belfast um, when I was 18, I moved um, to university in England. So I did my undergrad and master's studies at the University of Durham, a sort of smallish university in the Northeast. While I was there, um, sorry, I was studying chemistry. And, and uh, while I was there, I was doing a, a couple of research projects in Durham and in Belfast. And uh, after finishing my studies, then I moved to uh, University of Zurich for a PhD in synthetic organic chemistry in the group of Christina Nevado. And that's where we are now. And that's where we are now. And how much, you know, how much synthetic chemistry can you do from your apartment? <laughs> um, I, am I legally allowed to answer that question? It might get very breaking bad. Um, I honestly, not very much, not safely anyway. Um, purification is certainly an issue. I, I feel, you know, naked and unarmed without my column chromatographs and you know the various other trappings of the lab uh it's it's much easier to make something dangerous than to make it safe that's a good moral of the story it's a lot easier to make something dangerous than safe i i have this idea and i was thinking like a, a glove box 
but it's sort of like operated. You know how uh, surgeons do the surgery where they put that little probe in there and they kind of. Yeah, the Da Vinci machine, that kind of thing. And then they yeah. use the little like uh, triggers uh, to, to work it, do, you know, surgery without big openings. I'm thinking yeah. that, but like a glove box so that you could do reactions from really far away. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know whether my dexterity would be would be improved or, or diminished by by such a setup. I mean, having to work through like a half inch of, you know, uh, what is it? Plexi. Uh, it's like plexiglass. I, I, is it plexi? No, no. I mean, I mean the the glove material that oh, that's the, oh, uh, yeah, isoprene, yeah. isn't it? Something something like mm. that. It's just rubber. Well, anyway, um, I mean that's hard enough to to have to make a robot do it. It's, yeah, uh, right. it would probably be the, the ultimate test of organometallic, you know, uh, skill. Okay, so so this brings us into a beautiful segue. In what in the world are you talking about? You have said so <laughs> many words in such a short amount of time that are absolute nonsense to so many people. Uh, you are a synthetic chemist. Yeah, what that's in right. the world does that mean? Well, uh, I mean the the answer I've given in other situations because it's the most intuitive is that it's like Breaking Bad but legal. Um, <laughs> I, I want I want people to understand that that's what chemists mostly do, especially synthetic chemists. Um, we take uh, there's a target um, in in Breaking Bad. It's it's uh, dextromethamphetamine. Um, in my case, it is not. It's and, not good. Good to know. And we uh, and we work towards it. So we're either trying to develop methods to make new to make existing classes of uh, of molecules, or we want one route to reach one very complex molecule. Um, and this is this kind of distinguishes it from other sciences in that it's um, more about invention than discovery. We we may well call it discovery, but what we're doing is invention. So if we're going to take the Breaking Bad example, they yeah. were making their product, which was methamphetamine, and they were, you know, they started out making this one product, but then later in uh, season two or three or something, they started making a different product with higher purity, and it had like different optical properties, so it was like blue or whatever. Um, so when you were saying that you're looking for different ways to make the same compound, you could also find different ways to make different compounds that are similar. Yes. So, I mean, these, these are two sort of separate uh, areas of inquiry. The um, uh, optimizing the method for making one product is known as uh, process chemistry. Um, this tends to require chemists of a very high level of skill. Um, as far as I know, they tend to be quite well paid and they're the backbone of the chemical industry. Um, by making an industrial process 1%, 2%, 10% more efficient, you you know, you can save, I suppose, tens of millions of dollars, depending on the, um, you know, the, the, the marketability of, of whatever you're making. If it's a blockbuster drug, then, yeah, by all means, making it yeah. cheaper to make will not only save money, but save lives. So that that's a process chemist, right? You said yeah. process chemist? Yeah. Exactly. So this is a process chemist. That's kind of like a real big deal. And you said that this person has like a lot of skill or whatever. But yeah. because when it comes down to it, if you can decrease the amount of starting material needed or you can like uh, uh, make this reaction instead of being three hours long, now this reaction is one hour long, you are saving a company so much ridiculous amount of money. 
Yeah, and I mean, for a generic process, now this is kind of getting away from um, organic chemistry, which is my area of expertise, but um, a factoid that I like to throw around is that 1%, fully 1% of the world's energy is consumed by the Haber-Bosch process alone, that is the manufacture of ammonia. This is one chemical process. Um, if you can, and so, so this is um, the chief application of ammonia is in the manufacture of fertilizers. If you can make the Haber-Bosch process 1% more efficient, I have no doubt that you're saving thousands of lives just by doing that. Um, it, I mean, it's a, it, it is amazing that these, these small increases in efficiency can have the same effect as, say, curing an entire neglected disease um, in terms of lives saved. And uh, so although it's sort of less glamorous because, you know, your um, accomplishments aren't directly observed, it's extremely important. That's a really fascinating way to put it. Um, and I imagine that there are teams and teams and teams of people all trying to make fertilizer production more efficient. Um, yeah. Which that, that trickles down into like so many ways uh in 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 the future that that affects things so not only does that help with like the environmental cost of making the nitrogen sources for the fertilizer but then that's also probably going to help with crops it might even change uh food insecurity like people being able to you know afford food to put on their plates because crops are cheaper to produce because the ammonia for the fertilizer is easier to produce because they've made the process more efficient Exactly. So that's, yeah. that's a trickle down, if I've ever heard of it. Yeah, indeed. And and so, that you know, this is a, a way in which um, chemists often can't see the fruits of their labor in the same way, say, a medical doctor can. So, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the less glamorous pursuits, but, uh, you know, I, I have no doubt that it's just as important. I would say um, probably between a quarter and a third of the world's economy in terms of GDP is the chemical industry in all its forms, you know, um, pharmaceuticals, agrochemicals, process, um, crude, uh, crude oil, refining, you know, all of this. Yeah. So it, 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 it's the backbone of all human industry. I mean, look at your room right now. How many things are made out of plastic? Yeah. I mean, not, was involved. Yeah. And, to look at everything in my room that wasn't made of plastic, a chemist was involved in all of those as well. Yeah, concrete manufacture. I have concrete walls, which is, I my house was built in like the 1800s. So like I have concrete walls, real thick. I cannot hear the neighbors, but a chemist helped build those walls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the sort of early Roman um, progenitors of modern chemistry um, helped build the, the first concrete walls. Concrete harbors, I believe. Is the... What I'm getting out there is that chemistry has a very old and rich tradition, um, yeah. and and it vastly predates modern science. For sure, um, and now if I'm picturing, you know, alchemists trying to make gold out of, you know, iron nuggets and wizard hats and big pots of boiling liquids. Yeah, so I mean, that's uh, I, I would think a, a major ancestor to modern chemistry. So we've got these kind of it's a little like the Christian Bible in that there are, you know, the, these several traditions which converge because they seem to handle the same content, the same themes. Um, so where in, in theology you have the Abrahamic and Mosaic traditions, in chemistry you have the alchemists and the scientists. 
And these kind of come together in the late 18th century with something of a clash and the scientists win. But a lot of the, I mean, you know, you have alchemists being expelled from the Royal Society and you know, things of that kind. It's very dramatic. A lot of nice um, hot goss of the 1700s. <laughs> um, al alchemist traditions have been preserved in, uh, especially in my line of work, which is synthetic chemistry. So we talked about process chemistry. What was the other kind that we mentioned? Well, you were talking about the, uh, well, I, I think obliquely referring to um, the development of analogs. Yes. So, uh, you know, in, in the Breaking Bad example, taking, uh, you know, the, the original target, dextromethamphetamine, and then developing sort of similar molecules that may have similar or even enhanced properties. Um, so this is largely handled by medicinal chemistry um, and, and pharmacology and a lot of sort of related fields in that area. So um, the initial molecule that you start with is uh, generally referred to as a hit. So this is, uh, you know, uh, you screen a lot of molecules and you find one that has some of the activity you're after. Um, so say it might be, I don't know, anti-metastatic properties if, if you're, um, you know, an oncological medicinal chemist. So you might what, want what to... I have no idea what that word was. Anti so, uh, what? Anti-metastatic properties are, are uh, the, the properties of, of stopping a cancer cell from um, metastasizing, so uh, sort of reproducing across so the like body. So like chemotherapy in, in short? Well, the, this would be one of the components of okay. the... By the way, this is not my area of expertise, but fair, of, a, of, of a chemotherapeutic cocktail, you would generally have um, kind of cytotoxic... Um, components which kill cancerous cells and then anti-metastatic components that stop them from spreading. And this is kind of the, the pincer effect on, on a tumor. Okay. Um, okay. But um, so for instance, you know, you've, you've got a molecule that exhibits some of these properties, but um, if you feed it to an animal, the animal dies. This is a problem. Um, yeah, that, that's not good. <laughs> yeah, I understand so it, that. So the, this this is that its toxicity profile is suboptimal. Um, suboptimal. Okay, yeah, definitely so suboptimal. What what you, what you would generally do is try. I mean, if you can isolate features of this molecule that make it appropriate, if you can't, just you know take shots in the dark. But what you're trying to do is um, create molecules that look similar so that they may behave similarly, and some of them. You know, you, sometimes it's as simple as changing an atom. This gives it better cell permeability. It makes it less toxic. It, you know, it can have um, tremendous effects on the on the final product. There's things that we like that a chemical does, and there's things that we don't like. And we ultimately want to make the best Tylenol possible. We want to make the best aspirin. We want to make the best, um, you know, anti-nausea medicine. Um, and... This actually goes to say that that's why there are so many different types of medicines that are out there. I mean, you look at a brand like, uh, I'll just say like Aleve. I feel like every month there's a different commercial about a different, oh, this one's fast acting. This one's 24 hours I, long. I actually can't, no, this may surprise you, but in the UK, um, I think in general, advertising pharmaceuticals is illegal. So when I was in Boston, something that really just on a family holiday it was something that really struck me was that you know half of the advertising space between um shows was taken up by 
you know, this this cures baldness, this cures erectile dysfunction, this is a, a pain medication. Amazing. Um, yeah, it's, it, that's know. Western civilization in a nutshell <laughs> for you, and especially Boston. So I used to live close to Boston, um, and that's where a lot of that stuff comes out of. That's interesting. I, I suppose Massachusetts must be a, a huge technology hub. Uh, chemistry hub especially yeah 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 true robots too there's robots everywhere don't go to massachusetts people (laughs) uh so so that that's actually a really interesting point and i i think that says a lot more about culture than we can really even capture on on such a short radio show um but but we we look at all of these different types of drugs that are out there and it's not just like which one has the prettiest packaging or this one says 12 hours, that one says 24 hours, this one works in 30 minutes, that one works in two hours. There's a lot behind it. Yeah, so, I mean, for different, depending on what the drug does, um, there'll be different factors which dictate, you know, which molecule was chosen. So you, you mentioned Tylenol, I think that's what we call paracetamol, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, sure. It's uh, paracetaminophenol. Acetaminophen, yeah. Okay, yeah, then it, it's the same stuff. Okay. Um, I think that's a brand name. I we, you know, uh, that that's yeah, unfamiliar yeah, to me. I, I've heard it from some American YouTube videos, but our TV shows, you know. Yeah, indeed, it's uh, soft power. But um, um, this molecule is quite an interesting example because it's it's very simple. It's uh, it's planar. It's based on a single benzene ring, and it's manufactured from um, crude oil byproduct, fossil stuff. Um, so. I mean, they, there are other products like, uh, say, morphine. Um, I, you know, in, in a hospital, they would dose you with, well, actually, heroin, um, di, um, diacetyl morphine. But um, these are derived from natural products. So rather than making them from scratch, um, pharma companies will grow poppies and extract morphine and, and sort of semi-synthesize them. So, um, so this is interesting these two examples because in the latter case of um, heroin they find something that does what it does superbly um it you know the, the for the past 200 years there's hardly been a better analgesic so they just you know keep growing it no matter how expensive that is um you know that they, they'll buy the land and they'll hire the botanists to grow the poppies and they'll hire the chemists to do the refinery and the derivatization because ultimately the final product is essentially irreplaceable yeah and and this is that's a super interesting point so where the chemist comes in in this process is they're they're taking those poppy seeds they're getting what they want out of it but then they have a very important job of kind of like cleaning it up yeah so you know the the crude um, resin from an opium poppy will have to be um, purified, so it'll have various different alkaloids in it, and those will have to be separated in order to get the, excuse me, the um, the active ones. Um, and then the active ones generally have to be derivatized, so they have to be modified in some way to improve. Um, in this case, their, their permeation properties across the blood-brain barrier. Yeah more or less just saying their effectiveness of like really working yeah exactly um so this is largely a solved problem in this case but i mean it's an unsolved problem in in many others you know uh, what is interesting is you can read older literature like uh, to kill a mockingbird uh Mm -hmm. i believe scout's neighbor is uh is using morphine and and 
that uh, so this is kind of something that they talk about the poppies in the book as well. So it, it, you said that it goes relatively unchanged because it does a great job of what it's doing. Um, so then why would I hire a synthetic chemist if they could just I don't know, follow a recipe? It's like huh. this stuff has gone unchanged. Why? Why give you a job? Well, if if all you want is to acetylate morphine, then I'm not your guy. I mean, okay. I, I, any any chemist can do it, but you don't really. I mean, I I don't know. You probably need a chemical engineer more than a chemist because the the chemistry is so simple that any problems you encounter are going to be ones of of engineering. It'll be about how you design your plant or you know which uh, precursors you use to minimize cost, that kind of thing. All right, so when it comes to synthesis, there's something, and I'm not sure if this was an experience you had, but in undergrad and a lot of chemistry classes for undergraduate degrees, uh, making uh, acetaminophen, making that, that aspirin, that Tylenol product, is something that you do, you know, on a bench top in a university basement somewhere. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like a somewhat simple process, as you were saying, similar to that of the uh, the morphine from the poppies. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, I that was sort of the second point I wanted to get to with the acetaminophen, um, which is that this is clearly a molecule that's chosen because it's cheap. Um, aspirin has, has a lot of tradition, but acetaminophen is, as far as I know, purely synthetic. Um, but it's manufactured in, I don't know, four steps from, you know, something you get out of crude oil. I think it took us like, you know, two hours. Yeah, I mean, it dep- obviously it depends what you start with, and you know, most of your starting materials will also have been crude oil derivatives. But, um, but there are obvious advantages to this. So, you know, sometimes you have a headache, you take uh, acetaminophen, and you wonder, is it really doing the job? It's a very mild analgesic. Um, obviously, it has desirable properties. It's not, uh, you know, it's not addictive. There's no um, liability for psychological dependence. Um, but the main thing is it's cheap. It's extremely cheap and it's yeah. generic. Uh, so no pharmaceutical company owns the patent for it. Anyone can manufacture it. And, you know, it's, it's a commodity chemical, essentially. So we have talked a lot of pharmacology. That's, you know, the study of making pharmaceuticals. You are not a pharmacologist. I am not. Not, <laughs> not at all. So I'm, it- I'm very circumspect about what I say in this area. You speak more from the making of the chemical. Synthetic, you are creating chemistry. <laughs> yeah, I suppose you could, if, you could say that. Let's let's go ahead and give this a crude example, almost as crude as the starting material of the Tylenol. Uh, <laughs> or, or the aspirin, I forget which one. I get them confused. I'll put a clarification at the end of the episode. Um, you are almost like a chef in a kitchen trying to invent a brand new dish. Sometimes? Yeah, dude. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, uh, to, to some extent. Um, so, I mean, the the analogy it kind of breaks down at a point because, of course, as all analogies do. What what uh, like what process chemists do is more like you know optimizing a McDonald's process, trying to get the best consistency at the lowest cost with the lowest ingredient, that kind of. So, industry is. You know, part of it is fast food, and then you also have people at the other end where it's haute cuisine, and um, you know they're trying to design the best possible candidate for curing some disease. And often with complex antivirals, the, these molecules are incredibly complicated and and 
difficult and costly to make, but it doesn't matter because it's the only thing that works. So as this chef in the kitchen, and by the way, I love this McDonald's versus like Michelin star <laughs> The, the processed chemists are going to be very angry at me yeah. making that comparison, but, but yeah. <laughs> to, to say that they're, hey, <laughs> I, I am a food scientist by trade. I'm telling you what, the people who have developed the McDonald's hamburgers are borderline geniuses. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think so too. And I don't want to, you know, disparage that, uh, you know, that world industry either. But I think what processed chemists do is is something a little more magical. And it might be better described as... Um, bringing a Michelin-starred experience to McDonald's. There, you, okay, um, beautiful. Yeah. Now you won't offend anyone. Yeah, and you know it's possible. You, you sometimes you bite into that McDonald's burger and it is the best thing ever. <laughs> and you know if if they were just using ground beef on that burger, boy, it would be a disappointing experience. So they know yeah, what they're doing. Indeed, indeed. All right, so. As a uh, star chef, you know, a star-winning chef has in their kitchen, they have a bunch of gadgets and toys. Yes. Um, you, if if anyone ever has the pleasure of stepping foot into a, a, a chemical synthesis lab, you are going to see all the prettiest, uh, sometimes incredibly dirty toys. <laughs> yes, exactly. My favorite part about going to trade shows for anything, oh my God, I love going to like a chemistry society trade shows mm. because they have the most pretty glassware and mixing things and they always put some beautiful colorful solutions in them um so you have like a lot of equipment right oh yes yeah i mean uh, we we have some equipment that we use every day and then there's other more complex expensive equipment that we you know are sometimes forced to use but don't want to break yeah. Do you have like equipment that is just in the drawers? Like you honestly never use it? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, we're we're quite um, like synthetic chemists are notoriously paranoid hoarders. Um, so <laughs> if, if we find a piece of glassware and we don't know what it does, it's safer to keep it in your drawer than you know, <laughs> see it fall else's... into the wrong hands. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it may be that you need it and then you won't be able to get it back. Um, right. So... <laughs> So we're we're kind of uh, we're kind of bad people in in that sense, um, but uh, the vast majority. I mean, space is limited, so the vast majority of what I have in my workspace is is stuff that you know I, I know exactly what it does, and often I've specially modified it. That this is not uncommon either, um, and we use it almost every day. It's sort of the sturdy iron skillet. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's a, that's a good example. I have a garlic press. Sure. I never use this garlic press, but for some reason, I move it from apartment to apartment to apartment, and I move almost every single year. Uh, What's well, sentimental you, value? Is, is that what no, you're getting it, at? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't have sentimental value. Honestly, I just, like, I'm, I'm worried that I have more things than I need to have in my life. But uh, I think, like, a lot of times you find incredibly niche items that you have to use. And a garlic press does one thing. It's it's a unitasker at best. It it crushes garlic. Yeah. Um, so you do you have instruments that do one task and nothing but? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean the 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 thing is, I I suppose your analogy of the top chef is now um, starting to ring true because unitaskers are completely acceptable. Sometimes there are tasks that need to be done perfectly. And there's only one instrument that does it, um, you know, that does it to that level. 
And, uh, you know, although this is discouraged at lower levels, like I would never have one of these things in my home kitchen because it takes up space and I never use it. Um, in in the chemical laboratory, you'd, you'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. That's a really good point. Uh, if anyone finds themselves in like a storage area of any sort of like laboratory, um, we used to, it, it, where my, my previous, where I was doing my master's, uh, we used to have these large, expansive story area that was like, one was the entire basement. Other one was originally these chambers that they used to keep apples in during ferment, or not fermentation, during storage. So they were like hyperbaric. They had a pressure change and temperature okay, changes. Yeah. Um, but they were filled. It was like the archives of madness of glassware. Uh, to the point that, like, even if you do still learn traditional food science, they're going to talk about all this glassware to separate milk fat, and this hells, this this Keldall flask, this is a, you know, Erlemeyer, everything is all different, and they're all so super important, and then some of it just gets, like, tossed to the wayside, like, oh yeah, we never use those anymore, but don't worry, we have them in storage in case we do. Yeah, uh, so we, we have a lot of that, and there are... Um... But I, I mean, yeah, there are definitely things that we have in our lab where I, I still don't know what they do. Um, yeah. we, we, we inherited our lab space from, I mean, like a, a decade, two decades ago, something like that from, um, I think, hardcore natural products people. So they, had a, they have a lot of equipment on an unthinkable scale mm-hmm. for, for um, you know, lab synthetic chemistry. We're talking like 20 liter round bottom flask, things like that. That's uh, what four gallon or I, I don't know what the conversion. We is. use liters in Canada. Oh, you do? Okay, we right, do. Good, we do. Uh, <laughs> as for my American brain, that needs to go through one hoop. Yeah, but it's not that hard. What you find is that the the pieces of glassware, particularly things like Soxlet extractors, um, Soxlet. We, we, that's what I was. I couldn't think of the word. I was trying to think Soxlet. Very, very complex, intricate pieces of glassware, extremely expensive. It takes, um, you know, highly skilled glass blowers to make these things. And you think, am I ever going to use it? Probably not. You always use it. Every piece of, of equipment, it, it will come up eventually. Um, it came up in the past and nature hasn't changed. That's a really good point. And, you know, I remember there was this one large piece of equipment. I think it was like a... You know, I don't even remember what it was, but it it was this machine that every week I had to feed it uh, liquid nitrogen, you know, that really, really, really cold liquid uh, for two years. No one touched this machine, but it was my job every week for two years to make sure it had enough liquid nitrogen in it. I mean, this may not be of general interest, but would you mind telling me what the machine was? Oh, God, it was it froze the surface of something and then measured the partial pressure of surface tension after freezing it does that okay. narrow it down um i i this is not a piece of equipment that i will have encountered um yeah it was the, for measuring interfaces yeah i mean the, the the sort of um the science of surface chemistry is more like sort of at the interface between chemistry and physics so that uh, mm. very, very much not my area although i certainly admire the people who do it but um anyway the uh yeah, I'm familiar with liquid nitrogen, and I use it every day um, to cool uh, traps for um, vacuum pumps, um, I, among other, many other things, of, of course, um, in 
chemistry, liquid nitrogen and liquid helium are used to cool NMR spectrometers, and you know it, it's it's the bread and butter. Um, liquid nitrogen is fairly cheap. I remember a, a grad student when I was doing my undergrad saying that the difference between uh, liquid nitrogen and helium is that uh, the nitrogen costs about as much as milk. The helium costs about as much as good scotch. Wow, that's uh, that's really interesting. That's yeah, super cool it, to know. Um, and they both do a very different job, a similar a similar end result, but they both do a very different job of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, the, the helium is much rarer and it goes much colder, and that's mm -hmm. that's the crux of it. Helium has a I I don't I mean I I haven't picked this up from a reliable source, but I. I remember hearing that once helium is so it's largely mined. I think the Arizona is, is one of the um, the top um, places for finding helium. Presumably, this is from like alpha decay of of um, radioactive materials in, in the mantle, but um, I, I'm not sure about that. But anyway, uh, I've heard that once it gets into the atmosphere, it's usually lost. Like it, it just yeah. it picks up enough momentum to. Um, to leave the atmosphere it's lost into space um so i mean at the very least it's difficult to retrieve mm -hmm. and so the helium is running out and we're, we and, have and, a shortage i believe a worldwide shortage of helium right now yeah and we're still using it to i mean i i think this is probably the time for rationing uh, because we're still using it to you know fill children's balloons when <laughs> it's it's also absolutely necessary for the function of like MRI machines in hospitals mm -hmm. um which is kind of the the crude version of what we call an NMR spectrometer yeah so this is actually kind of loops back to something you said earlier you were saying like some of these processes are ridiculously expensive but they're indispensable we almost exactly, can't yeah. have society without them or at least modern society we can't have without them yeah, I mean, not having them would create outcomes that we consider unacceptable. People yeah. dying of preventable diseases, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so in general, and I know that this is not on your budget, and you're not paying money to do any of this right now. In fact, you, you get a stipend. Hopefully you get a stipend. You get a stipend. I'll just yeah. assume it. You should not be doing this if you don't get a stipend, everyone. <laughs> uh, that's torture. Uh, so you're, you ever, like, look at the costs of some of these materials? For, for like so many of these things, and as we were saying, it's like super important for, you know, society to function as a modern society. Um, but when it comes down to it, you might own a piece of glassware that's going to cost hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Would you yes. say that that's accurate in your field? Uh, absolutely. I mean, some equipment even more. Yeah. And then you have chemicals that might cost that much. What is the most expensive like per gram chemical you've ever purchased? Oof. Oof. Um, I think it was an iridium-based photocatalyst, mm -hmm. which cost about a thousand Swiss francs a gram. Okay, I got Actually. you beat. I got you beat. Yeah. What was I, that? I bought a milligram, so for the friends out there, that is one thousandth of a gram for yeah. four hundred and eighty-eight dollars. I take it this was an enzyme or something? This was, this is a super, super bright, stable probe for super resolution microscopy. So it was one of the Alexa probes, um, which you, you need this, but you need such a small amount, but it is stupid expensive per milligram is about 500 uh, Canadian or 500 American. So it's like a lot more Canadian. 
Yeah, so what, uh, half a million per gram then? Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you, cer you certainly have me beat. I got um, you beat. Now, the, the biochemists in our research group um, might be able to, you know, field something a little more impressive than the chemists. I bet um, they can, yeah. <laughs> because, I, it, I mean, ultimately, our goal is, I mean, most of our group is committed to various kinds of methodology, and our goal is to create processes which will be practical. And if anything that we're using costs half a million a gram, this is not, not, not going to be used by anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, like that's e easy even to in say. a boutique research environment. <laughs> oh, yeah, like boutique. See, that's the thing. Like, And then you think about if we're going back to this kitchen analogy, this Michelin star, that's like the difference between using turmeric and saffron. They both make yellow. <laughs> but one is going to cost you a lot more money than the other. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, like the, you know, what we were saying earlier, sometimes using the saffron is unavoidable. Yeah, sometimes if, you need the saffron. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, um, that, uh, I, I, I jumped into this kitchen analogy just thinking <laughs> like, ah, yeah, why not? But this is kind of striking how similar uh, you can pull all of these things together because uh, would you say now now to sum things up would you say that you are a glorified chef? <laughs> you don't um, like that. That doesn't that doesn't well, feel good when I say that. Oh, I, I I would suggest that the chefs are actually more glorified than we are. Oh, so is a chef a glorified synthetic chemist? <laughs> um, let's see. I mean, what uh, I, I want to consider the question carefully. Um, Chefs are certainly one, you know, they're one kind of chemist. And, you know, there's this sort of overlap with, with uh, molecular gastronomy. Um, chefs generally don't need to know in quite as much detail, you know, what, what exactly, exactly is going into the plate. They just need to know what the plate looks like in the end, what it tastes like, etc. Well, well, this, this plays into the fact that you were saying, like, it's easy to make something dangerous. It's hard to make something safe. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, and likewise, in cooking, it's much easier to make something that tastes terrible than something that tastes excellent. We've all been there and done that. <laughs> it is so easy to make disgusting food. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so then let's, uh, let's sum this all up by saying, what is the most disgusting thing you have made in a kitchen and then the most disgusting and unsafe <laughs> thing you've made in the lab? Oh, that's a good question. Okay, well, I'll start um, in the lab... Uh, the most disgusting thing I've made was um, was definitely a selenide derivative. Um, so I, I don't know if you've ever handled thiols, but these are the stuff, the things they put in in natural gas to give it its smell. So oh. it, they put it in in parts per million, parts per billion concentration. This stuff, if if it's concentrated, smells terrible. Mm -hmm. Selenides are their big brother. Um, oh. These have, um, as far as I know, no natural analog. Um, they're not metabolized properly by the body. So not only do they smell worse than anything, you know, the average person smells in their life, they also just pass through the bloodstream and come out in your sweat. So if you, oh. work, with, if you work with these, you smell bad for days afterwards. Oh, that's terrible. Um, I've never made anything quite that bad in the kitchen, although I have oh. a souffle collapse on me. Well, that, now you make that sound so tragic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've made some disgusting things in the kitchen, but we, we'll save that for another episode. <laughs> um, so, one, I I think that 
if if you could, and and this is a this is a big ask because we covered so many topics today. Could you give us a moral of the story, something that sums up all this nonsense that we just uh, went through? Well, I'd say that um, synthetic chemists are the, the kind of um, modern day equivalent of alchemists. We're uh, constantly striving to make things that uh, that can't yet be made. Um, the difference is we can do it. Um, we're not always successful, but we often are. And uh, you know, chemical synthesis is the is the backbone of civilization as we know it. Not to put it in too grandiose terms. Yeah, yeah, just like civilization as we know it, and that's the not too grandiose term yeah. we use to describe <laughs> it. I love it. Big fan. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for talking with us today and get back in the lab. You have a lot of reactions to run, don't you? <laughs> and they back in tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Get out of quarantine and get back to work. Sure. Isn't that it? Exactly. Uh, thanks for having me. Now that you've listened to our conversation with Mark about what synthetic chemistry even is, next time you're in the kitchen, you might think about the parallels between a chef and a scientist. I mean, they do both wear white jackets and they and there's another similarity but sometimes as a chef oversalts his soup a scientist has to recorrect something that they might have said that may have been partially incorrect or a little bit confusing when they said it so that's why at the end of every episode of we know some stuff we do a little bit of a fact check and re-explanation because <laughs> we do not know everything and right off the bat, while we were recording, I thought to myself, God, we're going to have to fact check this one, aren't we? And that is the big debate between what is acetaminophen, paracetamethyl, acetylacetic acid. So in short, throughout the recording, we referred to one major medicine that's used, which is acetaminophen. Acetaminophen is actually the same thing as paracetamol. Uh, for some reason, at some points, I called it paracetophetamol, which is not a thing. I just added an extra syllable in there. So acetaminophen is actually a generic drug, as Mark had mentioned before, and you will find these in brands like Tylenol. So there's no patent on it. Anyone can produce it. That's why when you go into a, a drugstore or any really supermarket, you'll find a whole bunch of different kinds of acetaminophen. Now, on the other hand, if you went to buy some aspirin, that's acetylacylic acid, which is different than acetaminophen or paracetaminophen. Once again, paracetaminophen is not a thing. And even further so, if you went and bought a drug called Aleve, that is not either acetaminophen or acetylacylic acid. That is naproxene. So it turns out there is a lot of variety out there. And I guess if we're to continue this whole cooking and kitchen allegory, we could say it's like salt. Like, what's up with that? There's iodized and crystallized salt. There's kosher salt. There's large flake pickling salt. They're all a little bit different. But they kind of do the same job, but not really. Either way, I'm happy and glad that I could clear that up because we don't get everything wrong, which of course is why the nature of the show is called We Know Some Stuff, not We Know All of the Stuff All the Time. And to get again further our little proof that we don't know everything, I'm going to play a clip that got chopped during the first round of editing, and it is of me realizing that a word is not actually what I thought this word was, and after 28 years of using this word, I should probably try to get it out of my vocabulary. So here is a clip of me thinking the word gastronomical is a word. 
It's it's crazy. Gastronomical or yeah, astronomical? Gastronomical? Gastro? 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 Like that, that's going back to the food. You really Is are that, a food scientist. You know what I am a food scientist. Gastro... <laughs> Like gastrointestinal, gastro, yeah, exactly. gastro. Gastronomy is the study of food. Yeah, but gastrointestinal. It's the study of the stuff that digests the food. Oh my God. Have I been saying that my whole life? Gastronomical. It's gastronomical. <laughs> I mean, no, gastronomical I is a word. Gastronomical is a word, but astronomical is definitely the word you're looking for here. Fair. All right, we'll put that down for another word that I've been using inappropriately my entire life. Will we'll, I we'll change? Scrub that we'll scrub that side. Uh, you know what? Leave it in. Uh, all right, so. I hope digesting this episode was as much of a gastronomical delight for you as it was for me recording it. Thank you for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.